Good morning, church. Senior blessings are amazing. I've had students in previous years that have shared that this is a time that they've heard for the first time their parents say some of these things to them. So anyway, listen, I love being part of a church that values our students, that trusts our students enough to have a youth weekend like this. Our band was pretty good, right? Listen, we have students that are serving as ushers and greeters. They're serving in the cafe. We even have students that are serving in our tech room, running the cameras for our live stream. But the cool thing is, is it's not just today. We have students that are serving throughout our church every week. The student ministry is both growing and thriving, not just by numbers, but more importantly, by the depth that they're willing to go in terms of their faith. And so much of this groundwork has been laid from Pastor Kyle for our student ministry. Now, last Wednesday, Edgewood hosted a combined youth group with Bethany Church. We had over a hundred students packed into here. We spent the night building relationships. We spent time in prayer, worshiping in music, sharing testimonies, and then a monster dodgeball game. I had two takeaways from that night. Number one is that our students so often feel alone in their schools. They often feel like they're the only one that's really trying to live their faith out. And so for them, this was an opportunity to meet other students from their same schools. And they were able to encourage each other and sharpen each other. My second takeaway from the night was that without the renovation of our facility, it would have been really tough to pull off an event like this. You see, our students began the night here in the cafe where they filled that room down out there. We then went down to the student center and packed to near capacity for music and testimonies. And then we finished the night off in our life center. So the sacrifices that so many of you have made over the years with grow time to make the renovation of this facility possible because of you, it's allowed for some amazing ministry opportunities to take place. One of our adult leaders shared in regards to this Wednesday night, he shared his takeaway. He said, before the testimonies and games, there's a simple reminder to everyone present that every Christ follower in that room was a brother or a sister in Christ. He says it was then that we all took part of student-led worship and testimonies. But he said, seeing a crowd of people I both knew and yet didn't know singing praises was one of the best parts of the union that night. He says, I was reminded, and surely the students of both ministries were too, that this is how eternity is going to look. All of us together singing praises to our Lord. Aren't our adult leaders for the student ministry, aren't they fantastic? I love that our ministry leaders are willing to take and uh, walk through life with our students and point them back to Jesus. So listen, if you're in here and you're one of the student ministry leaders, we guys just stand for just a second to be recognized. Any students in here, please stand too. I've got a special shout out to Chastity Holmquist. Chastity is fantastic. She helps lead the junior high and really is just amazing. And then also uh, Andrew Cato, he's the one that runs our band. And so the thing I love about him in terms of our band is that he isn't just here to teach them music, but he says, listen, if we miss Jesus in the midst of the music, then we miss the whole thing. And so thank you guys for all that you continue to do. Now, I grew up here at Edgewood. I went to kids' church with Miss Sheila. 
I remember before there was video screens, so I'm aging myself here. I remember Miss Sheila used felt boards and cutouts that she would put on those. You're laughing now. We used billboards and cutouts as she taught her Bible lessons. I remember Patty Steele banging away on the piano. I just talked with her last night. She spent over 40 decades serving in kids' church. But I remember the lyrics that we had for the songs were written on poster boards that we would hold up. And the older I get, the more I find it interesting that I can remember the lyrics from those songs. And I lost my coffee cup today. So here's a test for you. I'm calling you out now. Here's a test for you. I'm going to take and start with some of the lyrics from these old Bible songs that I learned, and I'm going to see if you can respond back with the next line. You guys ready? Jesus loves me, this I know. Oh, you guys are better than last night. Good job. How about this one? This little light of mine. The B-I-B-L-E. How can we remember this and you lose your car keys? All right, I got one more for you. Zacchaeus was a? A wee little man was he. He? Four? Man, you guys are good. Listen, recently I found myself going back and rereading some of these old Bible stories that I had learned in kids' church. And specifically for me, the life of Zacchaeus I have found just riveting. There's so much meat that's in this section of scripture. And it's interesting because all we know about Zacchaeus is found in 10 verses. So Zacchaeus is found in Luke 19, chapter 1, or verse 1. He says, he entered Jericho. Now he, this is Jesus. Jesus is entering into Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So we ran on ahead. He climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and he came down and he received him joyfully. And when they all saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, he said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've defrauded anyone, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Now, for only being 10 verses, there's so much there, right? There's so much that we can learn. But here's what I'm going to ask for you today. For many of you, maybe you're like, oh, I've heard the story time and time again. I know how this plays out. But what I'm going to ask you is to really lean in today, to listen as if it was the first time hearing this. So here, let me set the scene. Jesus was heading to Jerusalem. So you see, this is actually just a few days before he was crucified. And so Jesus is heading to Jerusalem, passing first through Jericho. Jericho, the same city that the Israelites marched around in the Old Testament seven times as the priests blew their trumpets and the walls came uh, tumbling down. The same city, the same city, but now in the New Testament, Jesus is entering I always pictured Jericho as this like dry desert 
brown, blah city, but the reality is, is it was known as being a garden city. You see, they had built aqueducts to bring spring water into the town to irrigate the land. Because of this, according to one writer, it was characterized by groves of feathery palms. Rising in stately beauty, stretched gardens of roses as far as the eye could see, sweet-scented balsam plantations. Deep down in a hollowed valley, it sat with massive limestone mountains to the left, the sunken Jordan Valley to the east, and off in the distance, the purple mountains of Moab. A remarkable place. Its streets were filled. Its streets were filled with pilgrims from Galilee, with priests who lived there and served there, with traders from all over. You see, this was one of the high-density trading centers. So there was routes going north, south, east, and west all, all, all over through the town. Tax collectors had a high profile there because it's one of the three regional tax centers in the land of Israel, the northern one being Capernaum, the central one being off the coast of Caesarea, and then this one in Jericho was the southern one. So here, Jesus all of a sudden comes walking into town. Not only does he have his disciples that are tagging along with, but he also has crowds of people, crowds of people that had begun to follow him. In addition to this, were masses of pilgrims that were also headed to Jerusalem for Passover. So not only is Jericho already this densely populated, bustling town, but now literally masses more people begin to fill the streets. Now, many who were piled in the streets were there because they were trying to figure out who this Jesus was. You see, they knew that he was a great teacher. They knew he had the power to perform miracles. So Lazarus lived only two miles away from Jericho. So by this point, they had to have heard about the miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. So they knew he had the power over death and disease and demons. But what this crowd, what they really wanted to know was if Jesus was really the Messiah. And this is where we meet Zacchaeus. The first thing we're told about Zacchaeus is that he's a tax collector, but he's not just any tax collector. He's the chief tax collector. And from this, he was rich. You see, in this prosperous town, there would have been many tax collectors, but the guy that sat on the top of the pyramid, the guy that was the top dog there, was Zacchaeus. Now, I don't know anybody personally that loves to pay taxes. And although in context... Through scripture, tax collectors have a bad reputation. But there's nothing intrinsically sinful about collecting taxes. Matthew 22, Jesus is being questioned by the Pharisees specifically about taxes. And Jesus tells the Pharisees, render to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God. Another writer explains that God never had a problem with taxes, but what he has a problem with is abusive taxes, illegitimate taxes, corruption, dishonesty. And so how was Zacchaeus rich? He was rich from dishonest gain. You see, Rome required them to collect a certain amount of money for taxes. But the problem is, is the people of Jericho didn't know what that, that, what that cost was. So this opens the door for corruption. For the tax collectors to illegitimately tax in areas or in amounts that were excessively above and beyond what was required. So Zacchaeus 
simply by working for Rome as a tax collector, he would have been seen as a traitor to his own people. Simply because of his occupation, Zacchaeus would not have been able to attend the synagogue. He wouldn't have had any social relationships. He uh, would have been considered socially unclean. So this means nobody would talk to Zacchaeus. No one would be friends with Zacchaeus. No one would visit his home, and definitely no one would eat with him. No one other than maybe the scoundrels of the city. And so Zacchaeus was seen as self-enriching. He was corrupt. He was a traitor to his own people. Verse 7 tells us the reputation that Zacchaeus has. It says the entire town grumbled when they saw him. The one thing he was known for was being a sinner. I mean, think about that. You walk into the grocery store and literally everyone knows you. Literally everyone recognizes you. But the one thing that everyone knows you for isn't for being a mom or a dad or a welder or an accountant. But the one thing that literally everyone knows you for is being a sinner. I mean, I think that we can probably sit here today and admit that we are sinners and that we're saved by grace. But can you imagine... Can you imagine that being all you were known for was being a sinner? So because of this, I would think that it would make it tough for Zacchaeus to even want to walk out of the house. Now, arguably, it's his own fault. The reputation he had, it's his own fault. He earned it. But still, my heart breaks. For Zacchaeus, what a lonely life. Right, like I wonder, was this the life that Zacchaeus had pictured for himself? You see, he was rich, but he was alone. Was this a life he pictured for himself, or had he bought into this cultural standard that life is about making money, and money can buy happiness, and fulfillment comes from the work you do, and suddenly now the culture doesn't seem so different, does it? But here's Zacchaeus. He's willing to walk outside of his house. He's willing to walk into this busy street surrounded by people that hated him, willing to place himself in a situation where people are going to judge him and shout at him. I mean, Zacchaeus was a Jew. So maybe the people in the crowd have just gotten to a point where they had written him off. Right, maybe they were at the point where they were like, Zacchaeus, you had the chance. You had your chance, your opportunity to know this Jesus guy. You had your opportunity to know if he was the son of God, but you blew it. Man, you blew it when you lost your right to know Jesus when you chose your sin over everyone else. When you chose your sin and you turned your back on your own people. But here's Zacchaeus. Here's Zacchaeus, like something's like stirring in him. Something's softening his heart. Something's drawing him. Zacchaeus was willfully placing himself in this horrific position, all because he had heard about this guy named Jesus. And Zacchaeus simply wanted to see him. You see in verse three, it says that Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. It doesn't say Zacchaeus was seeking to speak to Jesus. It doesn't say that Zacchaeus was, was seeking to be healed by Jesus or to touch Jesus' robe. It doesn't say any of that. It says all he wanted to simply do was lay his eyes upon this guy named Jesus that he had heard so much about. So here's the part that I begin to love. I love the extreme lengths that Zacchaeus will go to to figure out who Jesus was. 
You see, a lot of people in that town were trying to figure out exactly who Jesus was. Some said that he was an imposter. Some said he was the devil or a fanatic or a heretic or a prophet. There was some that said that Jesus was the son of God. But you see, this is the question that we must wrestle with. Who is Jesus? You see, Peter was asked the exact same question. He was challenged on this directly by Jesus. In Matthew 16, Jesus asks the disciples. He says to the disciples, he says, who do people say the son of man is? And the disciples, they respond back. And they say, some people say that Jesus is John the Baptist or Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. But now all of a sudden, Jesus does something kind of cool, something that was maybe unexpected. Because he turns directly to Peter. Peter, the guy that literally in just a few days is going to deny him three times. He turns specifically to Peter and he says, Peter, who do you say that I am? I challenged our junior high and our high school students on this exact same question during a lock-in back in December. I asked our students, who do you say Jesus is? You see, if this question is so important that Jesus is asking the disciples, then this is a question that we have to wrestle with and ask ourselves. Right? I don't want the answer of who mom and dad says Jesus is or who grandma and grandpa says Jesus is or who the pastor says Jesus is, but who do you say Jesus is. Peter replied to Jesus. Peter looks at Jesus and says, you're the son of the living God. But it doesn't stop there. Listen, this is so good. Because Jesus now responds back to Peter again, and he says, Peter, you are blessed because... It wasn't flesh and blood that revealed that truth to Peter. Instead, Peter understood that Jesus was a son of the living God because in verse 17, my father in heaven revealed it to him. My father who is in heaven revealed it to him. Do you see the impact of that statement? This means that God was the one that was pursuing Peter. God is the one that's seeking after him. It means that Peter's faith was not by sight, but was because God was drawing him close. You see, church, we have a God who pursues us. So who do you say Jesus is? So I had a student pull me off to the side after I had challenged them on that question back during that winter lock-in. And he told me, he says, listen, Chris, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. He goes, but when you ask that question, who Jesus is, he goes, I realized I never had professed him as Lord. And he's like, I want to make that right. And so we're literally in the life center. There's a monster dodgeball game that's going on here, yelling and screaming. And all of a sudden we're standing here and he prays in that moment, and professes Jesus as Lord over his life. So here's Zacchaeus. He's wrestling with who Jesus is. He finds himself in this chaotic place. He's pressing against the crowds that are filling the streets. He's trying to see Jesus with everything 
everything he has. He's trying to just lay his eyes on Jesus and realizing he wasn't going to be successful. He does the unthinkable. This man who was rich, this guy who held position and authority and prestige and power, he begins to run ahead of the crowd. Not only did he do this, but he acted like a child and climbed a tree. One pastor puts it this way. He says, his stature was small, but the crowd was massive. You see, he's bouncing up and down. He's bobbing back and forth, trying to look through the crowds. And he can't see Jesus. You see, is Zacchaeus curious? Yeah, he's curious. But is it more than that? It has to be. You see, he has a dissatisfied heart. He knows that he's alienated from God. He knows he has no eternal life. He knows he's overwhelmed with guilt and sin. Zacchaeus knows the kind of man that he is. Listen, we don't know exactly what was going on in his heart, but he was after Jesus for more than just curiosity because... The Holy Spirit made sure he was in the right place at the right time for Jesus to look at him and speak to him. I love this part. I love this. And all of God's sovereignty amongst all the people that's in the crowd who were there to see Jesus, right? There was people that were good and righteous that were there to see Jesus. Amongst all the people who followed the law to a T, amongst all the people in this crowd, even the ones that called Jesus already the Son of God, the one person The one person that Jesus stops for, the one person Jesus calls out to, is the one guy who is so caught up in his sin. And Jesus met him exactly where he was at. You see, Jesus pursued him. Jesus pursued the one guy that was willing to look foolish. Jesus pursued the one guy that was willing to go against all cultural standards. The one guy that was literally willing to come to him as a child Jesus pursued the one guy that was, that was desperate to see him. So here's Zacchaeus clinging to the branches of this tree, stretching, finally setting his eyes on Jesus. He's peering through the leaves. What a shock it had to have been for Zacchaeus when Jesus made eye contact with him. Then over the roar of this massive crowd, not only did Jesus make eye contact with him, but he calls Zacchaeus by name. He called him by name. You see, Jesus knew him. Jesus knew everything about him. He knew the life he was living. Jesus knew the condition of his heart. He knew the corruption that he was a part of. Jesus knew that he was a traitor to God's chosen people. Jesus knew the hidden sins that no one else knew. And still, in that moment, Jesus called him by name. You see, Jesus saw him. Jesus knew him. Jesus pursued him. And then Jesus called Zacchaeus to himself. Maybe today Jesus is pursuing you. I remember years back sitting in this exact same church in this exact same room right over in this section over here wrestling with the exact same question. Who do I say Jesus is? But you see, not knowing truthfully how to answer that question, but God was 
pursuing me. One writer jokes, he says, I think if it were me in that moment, I'd fallen out of the tree, landed on my head, and had been taken to the hospital and been converted. But you see, for Zacchaeus, one look was all it took. One look at Jesus, and Zacchaeus knew exactly who Jesus was. Zacchaeus was changed. Because he went from hiding behind the leaves in this tree to giving half of his goods to the poor. See, much like the student at that lock-in, for the first time, he knew exactly who Jesus was. Zacchaeus calls him Lord. His changed heart has seen that Zacchaeus, upon being drawn close to Jesus, Zacchaeus' heart was convicted. And so he repents. He confesses. He made right the wrongs that had done. And immediately, publicly, right there in front of everyone, including Jesus, Zacchaeus stood before the judgment of the public crowd and he declares himself guilty. You see, not only did Jesus see Zacchaeus, not only did Jesus call him by name, but Jesus told the one guy in Jericho who had the reputation, who was known as a sinner, he tells the one guy that was despised and hated, Jesus tells the one guy no one else would even speak to, Jesus says, I must stay at your house today. So this had to have shocked Zacchaeus. I mean, because of his occupation, his reputation, Zacchaeus was isolated. Nobody would associate with him. So Jesus was possibly the first guest ever at his home. Verse 6 says, Zacchaeus hurried and he came down and he received Jesus joyfully. Other translations say that he received Jesus gladly. The original Greek of this is literally rejoicing. So Zacchaeus came down and he received Jesus rejoicing. Luke used this exact same word nine other times and each time was to describe an attitude of joy accompanying faith and salvation. Now, the one thing that caught me differently when I read this recently, you see, while Zacchaeus was in that tree, Jesus called him down. As much as Zacchaeus went to such lengths to see Jesus, but Jesus more so wanted to see Zacchaeus. You see, Jesus is the one that called Zacchaeus close. Jesus is the one that says, I want to stay in his home. As much as Zacchaeus was going to such lengths to see Jesus, Jesus more so was pursuing him. This makes the life of Zacchaeus the story of salvation. Verse 10 tells us the purpose of why Jesus came. It says, for the son of man came to seek and save the lost. This radical change in Zacchaeus that we see, this man that was lost in the world, enraptured in sin, was living life for himself, but one genuine encounter with Jesus and was forever changed. Although Zacchaeus was instantly changed, he found salvation in Christ, but more so in that moment, his eternity was changed. But then I'm reminded of the rich young ruler. Mark chapter 10 tells us the rich young ruler 
stood before Jesus. He spoke with Jesus. Jesus loved him. Yet, when the rich young ruler wrestled with the same question, who do you say Jesus is? He called Jesus good teacher. Because he only saw Jesus as a teacher and not as Lord, the rich young ruler walked away, disheartened and sorrowful. Some of our high school students answered the question of who you say Jesus is this way. One said, he's God who became man and died so that I may live. Another said, he's my best friend. He's the one that knows and understands everything I'm going through. He's my creator. He's the one that has ultimate authority over my life. Our students get it, right? Our students are getting it. See, it's only when you have a right view of who Jesus is, when you come to this place where you can answer this question, who do you say Jesus is, that you can finally tell God, listen, God, I no longer want to sit on the throne of my own life, but I want you to take the rightful place on the throne. So church, I ask you today, who do you say Jesus is? You see, Zacchaeus ran from God for so many years. He lived a life for himself, a life where he was pursuing every sin. But finally, he came face to face with Jesus, and he had to make a decision. I share with my students often that through Jesus, we have assurance of salvation but I need to be reminded sometimes. And so every morning when I wake up, I sit on the edge of the bed and I put my feet on the floor and I preach the gospel to myself. And every morning I have to recommit my life to him. So maybe today you're here and you just needed to be reminded of the power of the gospel. Or maybe this morning you realize you've never stood before Jesus and called him Lord of your life. Listen, if that's you today, what's holding you back? What's stopping you? What's what's stopping you from calling out to God, asking for forgiveness, and placing your life in his hands? Now I'm going to invite the deacons and we're going to transition to a time of communion. For both the junior high and the high school retreats, though, we had this cross at the retreat. And I asked the students to take and write out the one thing that was holding them back from a deeper relationship with Jesus. I asked them to write out the one thing that was keeping them from being fully committed to Christ. And they took those papers and then they folded them and then they took and nailed them to this cross. I later tore those papers and burned them, but I wanted to leave the nails in this cross as a reminder. As a reminder to our students. And now this cross hangs in our student center, so our students see this cross multiple times a week, and they see the nail that they took and hammered into this cross. And they're reminded they no longer carry those things, but they've given them over to Christ. 
So each of these nails serves as a reminder to our students that they made a decision to be more fully committed to Jesus. And each of these nails serves as a reminder to us of a life that is changed by the power of the gospel. Now, in a similar way, we're told to take communion, to remember because we forget. We need to remember that it's only through Jesus that we have a right relationship with God again. We forget, so we need to be reminded. We need to be reminded of all that was accomplished on the cross. 